Mac Power Users, Episode 202, MPU Live, for Saturday, July 5th, 2014. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. Hey, David. Hey, Katie Floyd. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. Welcome back to another MPU Live. We've got uh, more people than I expected in the chat room for a holiday weekend here in the U.S., so welcome. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us on this Saturday morning or afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. Yeah, I figured everybody would be recovering from the holiday a little bit, and we, we record kind of early on the West Coast, so... I'm impressed. T- Color a- me impressed. T- 10 a.m. is early on the West Coast? Maybe. It is after a holiday. Maybe if, for if you. you celebrated it right. West Coast people <laughs> over there. My goodness. Also. We East Coast folks, we get up early and we got to get some actual work done. Okay. Well, you win again. Sp- speaking of getting work done, if you if you hear a little uh, whirling around in the background, that would be David madly encoding and trying to get all of his presentations and videos done. I think you're up to over 40 now. Yeah, this book, I, I'm going to be pushing the limits of iBooks author again. So I, we'll see what happens. I may have to cut some because I'm not sure if it'll all work. But, it, you know, iBooks author is funny. Sometimes you, you it does its own little bit of encoding when you put a video in it. And sometimes you put one in and it takes a couple minutes and everything's just fine. And this one in particular I'm putting in now has been going for an hour and a half. And, and, and it says just, it has five minutes left. And David's like, please don't make me stop it. Yeah, and, well, now it it says six minutes, so I don't know what the heck is going on in there, (laughs) but I'm going to let it run in the background, and I'll shush myself when I'm not talking, so everybody doesn't have to hear the fan, but hopefully it'll be done, and you'll get a live, you know, story about what's happening. There's a a possibility that it'll just crash iBooks author at the end, and it'll all be for nothing. Uh, You'll be lucky if it doesn't crash your entire Mac, and we just lose you completely for the podcast. No, that doesn't happen. No. iBooks author cra- iBooks author crashes on some while, but it never takes down the rest of the computer. That's that's one thing going forward, I guess. <laughs> okay. Well, so uh, you announced it last week officially, but your new book, your new Max Sparky Field Guide, is Presentations, and it's available for pre-sale right now. But it's it's coming out on the twenty first, I believe, for real. It is. Uh, yeah, as we record this on July fifth, I only have. About 10 more screencasts. I'm going to be spending the rest of the day today doing screencasts as soon as we uh, hang up this call. And I'll be submitting it on Tuesday. And that gives Apple two weeks to make sure everything's good. And it will release on the 21st. Wow. So um, so it's pretty important that we let this video finish encoding so you can get your stuff done. Well, if it's taking an hour and a half, I don't want to have to go through it again. So I'm right. sorry about that little bit of fan noise. Um, okay. But the, yeah, the book's coming out really good. It's 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 really something special. The design is all new, and it it looks really great. And I don't know, it's it's fun. The book has a video. That's the first time I've ever done that. I've got a lot of nice feedback on that too. Awesome, awesome. Well, uh, my one announcement, not nearly as fancy as is doing my own iBooks author book, but I'm going to be speaking at Milo Fest, which is the Max in Law Office conference, which is held down here in uh, Disney World, much, much nicer than Disneyland. Uh, Thursday, October 23rd through Saturday, October 25th. It's at the uh, Yacht Club down in Orlando. I'm actually going to be talking on the highlights and lowlights of OS X Yosemite. Um, 
So I guess I better actually get cracking with Yosemite. But if if you are an attorney who uses a Mac in your office or aspires to use a Mac in your office or wants to convince the folks in your office that, yes, you can use a Mac, a great group of folks down here. Um, check it out at milofest.org, and you can get all the information to to sign up for that. David, we got to get you down here for MiloFest one year. Katie Floyd, have you ever been to Disneyland? No, but I can imagine. It, I mean, it just so, seems small so on, and sad and, yeah. On what dingy. basis could you possibly decide that Disney World is better than Disneyland, not having been there? Well, I mean, we, we've got the Magic Kingdom. We've got Epcot. We've got Animal Planet. We've or yeah, no, Animal, yeah, Animal something or other. Animal Kingdom. There you go. Animal we've Kingdom. got Animal Kingdom. We've got MGM. Did I already say MGM? And then right down the street, we've got all the Universal stuff that's include Harry Potter Land. And I mean, come on. Yeah, we're going there next month. That's our big family vacation this year. And my family is actually really jacked up about Harry Potter Land. I've I've never been to Harry Potter Land. I I would like to go. So, all right. Well, enough about that. We've been going on for five minutes about stuff that's not related to Mac Power users. So maybe we maybe we better get started with that. Okay. We've got some good feedback, um, starting with David. Yeah, so we've got kind of a theme going for the for the first little bit of, of this episode, and that is kind of what what can you do to get started? And David has a question along that line, so let's hear from David. Hi, Katie and David. My name is David Galloway in Greenville, South Carolina, and I have a question about planning the order of operations for a Mac productivity strategy. I'm a relatively new Mac convert and been listening to your podcast for about the past two months. And to be honest, it's like drinking from a fire hose. I want to incorporate all these great tools, OmniFocus, Hazel, Text Expander, Apple Scripts, but I'm not sure where to begin because, you know, as you add in various elements, uh, it becomes more and more exponentially complicated. So I'm thinking that perhaps the best strategy is to start with Hazel and Text Expander creating rules and snippets and then adding in other productivity tools. But considering you're both the experts and I'm just a young Padawan, I wanted to get your opinion. Thank you so much for the wonderful podcast and happy 200. I think David has has got it right in his, with his gut reaction is when you want to get into this stuff, the, the worst thing you can do is try and take on more than you can conceivably, you know, incorporate into your daily routine. It's just like keyboard shortcuts. If you're going to learn keyboard shortcuts for an app, don't get a list of 20 keyboard shortcuts and try and learn them. Figure out the two that you're going to use most often and learn those and start using those daily. I mean, command S is to save. I mean, a lot of people don't even know that. Uh, so use just use the couple that are going to work. And once you realize that those two are second nature to you, then expand it a little bit. So I would argue uh, with David is, you know, why don't you just get text expander and just start there and start using text expander, start understanding how it works. Um, I think we're going to have some content on that pretty soon and, you know, just kind of get good at it and then go to the next step and, and figure out what's important. One of the things we try to explain on the show is what pieces of this involve, um, like file management versus, you know, sending emails or these different elements of productivity and figure out, you know, the, the particular pain point in your life. And then we'll, you know, work on the tool for that. Well, I, I want to back up a little bit, even from from just jumping right in, because we get this question or a variation of this question 
I can't even tell you how many times a week or a month from different people who maybe have just found our podcast or someone has directed them to us or they've come to us through the blog or whatever, and they want to start using their Mac more productively. And I just had an instance last week. I, I In my past life, I did some computer consulting and some Mac consulting, and I just frankly, I, I don't have time to do that anymore now. But this guy local called me up. He found me through my Mac user group. And I said, well, I'll sit down and I'll have coffee with you, but I can't really commit to much more than that. And we just sat down for an hour and he had never heard of my podcast or anything like that. And I was able to talk to him and just sit back and say, well, tell me what you're struggling with. Tell me what what are your pain points every day with your Mac and tell me what you would like to do better. And it was kind of helpful because he brought his Mac and he brought his iPhone and things like that. And that was a really good jumping off point for us. Um, in his particular case, and I don't know if it's David's case or if it's anybody else's case, but he, he opened up his inbox and he said, I can't manage this. You know, he's got 8,000 messages in his inbox. He's got messages coming in from seven different email addresses that he's accumulated throughout the years. And some people email him at this place and that place. And so that was one problem that he had. You know, another problem that he had is that he had run out of hard drive space in his Mac. He had a relatively new Retina MacBook Pro, and it had a 512 SSD. So this was a pretty high-end new machine, but he was out of space. And uh, when he went to um, the local Best Buy store, because we don't have a we don't have an Apple store nearby, but we have that you know Apple store within a Best Buy store, and sometimes it's staffed with Apple people or Apple trained people. Sometimes it's not. Well, their solution was they they sold him a Seagate external hard drive and said, "Well, just put your iTunes library on this, and it'll be great." And you know, of course, that's a miserable experience. It, now he has to carry around an external hard drive and plug that in every time he wants to do something with iTunes, and and so. Well, okay, well, that's clearly a pain point, but what, you know, he, in his case, he was a, a frequent traveler. He had an Audible subscription that he had had for years, and he had over 100 gigabytes of Audible downloads that were just, you know, completely overrunning his hard drive. And I said, well, do you really need those? Well, no, I don't. I mean, the, he's got books going back for years. And, you know, with Audible, you can always re-download them if you want to listen to them again, but would it really be bad if you maybe just had 10 books on your hard drive and you could download the ones that you were actively listening to and got rid of the rest? And, you know, so just thinking through some of what are my pain points, what are my problems? And once I was able to figure out where his points of friction were, then I was able to send him to some resources. I sent him, uh, it's available on, on Google. It's a great talk. Uh, Merlin Mann's Inbox Zero talk that I think uh, was recorded and that he gave at Google. Um, of course, I sent him your book on email, David, and we talked about managing his iTunes library. And we just tried to pick out three or four key pain points that he could work on and make that computing experience better. And so I think that's a good place to get started is in terms of where to begin becoming more productive, what's causing you the most pain? And then exactly as you were saying, Try not to be overwhelming, but try to figure out what are just a couple of things that I could learn about using these apps more efficiently and doing things better that would make my life better. And the other thing I would I would say is if you're going to pick a horse, you know, spend some time learning how to ride it. I um, you know, I went back to Launch Bar, you know, when they came out with the new version and I had been using um, um, was Alfred for a while. So I actually scheduled myself an hour and a half just to kind of go through all the launch bar keyboard shortcuts again, just to kind of familiarize myself with them. Um, I think that's a good, that's a good idea with any kind of application that you are, um, 
that you're going to be working with. So the um, if you're going to learn Text Expander, you're going to learn Hazel, don't just start using it. Give yourself a little bit of time to get good at it. And then, frankly, find some specific problems that you can use to make answers to with it. I mean, learning something in the abstract is one thing, but actually using it to solve a problem helps you learn it even better. Yeah, we had someone ask in the in the Google Plus community, which is a great community. I think we're almost up to 1,500 members, by the way. So if you haven't joined, there's a link on our website at MacPowerUsers.com that will take you right to it. And, and I love how people are asking questions and, and answering everybody else's questions. How can I get more proficient at Hazel? Because that's a very powerful tool. We talk about it all the time. Well, of course, we've got a couple of Mac Power Users episodes on Hazel, and we'll probably put links to those in the show notes if you're interested in them. But the Hazel forums are very helpful places for people who want to get started because you can throw out an idea in the forums of this is what I'm trying to do. This is my problem. This is the type of thing I'm trying to accomplish. I think that I might want to go about it this way. And you'll get a response within a day or so with people giving you ideas and giving you feedback on how you can make that better. Don McAllister's screencasts online is a, is another place that we talked about. I'm pretty sure he's done a screencast or two on Hazel just to help you get started Lynda.com, they're not, sponsor, but I'm not, I'm not sure if they've got anything on Hazel, but they certainly have things on some of those bigger apps out there. Well, the, you know, the other thing in the Hazel forums is if you have a problem or some really bizarre question, not only will someone give you help, they may post an Apple script or something that you can embed in your Hazel uh, that solves the problem for you. And you may not know a lick of Apple script, but suddenly you've got it working for you without having to have learned it, which is kind of nice. Um, so off the top of my head, th those are a couple of things. And I think you're right, David. And if you've got email under control, if you've got tasks under control, if you've got your basic Mac operation under control, and you're just looking to pick a few more things to become more productive, what are those problems that you're trying to solve? And then what are the tools that you think will help you solve those problems? And then just spend some time, set aside a weekend, set aside a couple of hours on a weekend, pick one of those tools and figure out how it can help you do that. Uh, Text Expander is a great one. And as David alluded to, I believe our next episode is going to be uh, all about Text Expander, which I'm looking forward to. Okay. What, what other things would you do, Katie, if you were new to the Mac from the PC and you wanted to get a little better at this stuff? Oh, wow. Would that change anything? Well, I think one of the things coming new to the Mac from the PC that is a little conflicting to people is the Mac style of doing things, a little bit of using the windows, using the dialog boxes. It's not that different now going from a Mac to a PC than it used to be. Maybe a little bit about organization and how things are just learning the the filing system. I don't know if this is a PC thing or if this is a novice computer thing, but I see people in my office do this all the time where Microsoft Word is the gateway to everything. If I ask them to open a PDF or to print a PDF, you know how they'll get to it? They'll open Microsoft Word and then they'll go to the open dialog in Microsoft Word and then navigate to the PDF and open that. Because they have, there's no concept of a file system. And again, I'm not real clear whether that's more of a PC thing or whether that's uh, just a novice computer user mistake. But I think it's very important to spend some time, if you're new to the Mac, getting familiar with some of the Mac operating system and how that works. How can you quickly navigate? I'll tell you one of the things 
I don't use some of the newer features in the OS. I don't use tabs as much as I should, and I really wish that I did. I don't use desktop spaces as much as I should, and I know that I could be much more productive if I did. And I really need to spend some more time taking use of those things. And I think with Yosemite, I'm sorry, yeah, with Yosemite, that's the new operating system coming out. We're going to see some new features with Notification Center that are going to make those even easier to use. I'm really surprised you don't use a lot of spaces because you're using a 13 inch uh, MacBook. So, you know, you would you should be taking advantage of spaces. I'm surprised. Well, that's true, but in in my case, my 13 inch MacBook is almost always connected to my 24 inch cinema display. So I'm almost always working on a dual monitor setup here at home. Now I. I truly believe that my next machine is going to either be an 11-inch MacBook Air or whatever this mysterious 12-inch something or other, you know, in the middle machine that we think Apple is coming out with will be. I'm looking forward to that. I don't use my laptop as a laptop, I think, as much as most people do. But that's about to change, David. I, You know, I, I've told you, I haven't told any of the Mac Power user people yet, but I'm getting ready to go back to school part-time. And so at least two days a week, I'm going to be carrying this MacBook Air with me to a classroom. And uh, that's going to be my main machine. And that that will be interesting. I, I can't wait to talk about that on the show and see uh, some workflows for truly using this machine. You remember how I've always said, I can't, boy, I wish I was a student and having the technology then that we have now. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so I decided to go back to school. There you go. All for well, Mac Power you know, users. It's funny, Katie, because the um, my daughter graduated high school a few weeks ago. Thank you, everyone, who was so nice on Twitter about that. But uh, a bunch of her friends, we were sitting around. We had a little graduation party for her. And, you know, she's got these friends. They're all so smart. They're going off to all these great universities. And most of them have Macs or iPads or some combination thereof. And we were talking about it. I was kind of giving the speech about how I wish I had this technology. And they didn't really, they weren't that aware of it because in high school, they just don't really take advantage of this stuff. So now we've, we've planned a barbecue at the Sparks house and I'm going to have a bunch of uh, college bound kids at my house in a month. And we're going to have a tech session and we're going to talk about, you know, best ways to take notes in class and stuff. And I was thinking about talking to you this. I haven't, haven't talked to you yet, but I thought there'd be a show in it. Once I finished all the, you know, the prep for that, we could maybe talk about it to the listeners as well, but you're going to be right in there with us. Yeah. I'm going to need to know all that stuff. Maybe I can join you via FaceTime. Just yeah, hop on a plane. Just or I can hop on here. a plane. That'd be fun too. Yeah. Hold, just hold me up yeah. on the iPad. I'll be there. All right. So, yeah. Okay. Well, there's another future show, <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's time to talk about, you know, going to school with this technology because there's some great stuff out there and that kind of leads right to our next comment. Yeah. Here's a, a comment from Mike who is a teacher and let's hear what he has to say. Hi, David and Katie. This is Mike Rogers. I'm an elementary school principal from Minnesota. And I just wanted to tell you about an experience I had uh, a couple months ago. I presented at a conference for educators in Pittsburgh, and I presented a session for school administrators in which I tried to tell them some of the tips and tricks that I've learned for using an iPhone and an iPad to be more productive and efficient. And of course, a lot of the things that I told the group about were things that I heard on your podcast. So I just wanted to thank you. And uh, I I really got a kick out of uh, talking to these 100, 150 principals that were gathered in this room about some of the ways that they could use their phone for uh, just to get more work done and to be more effective. Uh, we talked a lot about drafts. 
and they were just blown away about the uh, my workflow for uh, recording classroom observations of teachers and how uh, I have this workflow that puts all this information into a spreadsheet and also emails it to the teacher with one tap with drafts. And they were just blown away by that and about Fantastical and a number of other tools that I told them about. So I learned a lot about this stuff from you guys. So I wanted to just uh, extend my gratitude to you. And uh, I'm trying to spread the word about some of these things and the way that people can can put these devices to work for them. So thanks again. And thank you for the great show. Now, Mike, if, if you're out there listening, I, I think I'd love to have you come on one of these upcoming MPU live shows and tell us a little bit more about that, because that's just fascinating to me, the way that you're using drafts. Now, I am going to put a link in the show notes, and maybe we'll talk about it a little bit here now, to uh, Mike wrote up a post, and he's got some accompanying video and things like that about how he does this. And it's it's pretty interesting, but I'd, I'd love to have Mike come on and, and do it before. Normally, we like to try to have a guest on one of these MPU live shows, but with the holiday weekend, as we're recording this, that was that was kind of hard to schedule. Yeah, and I can't get over how much how great drafts is. I mean, do you, do you use drafts often, Katie? We talked about it probably about six months ago on a show when we did the kind of automation with iOS show. Drafts is in my doc. Yeah. And sometimes do you ever get out of the habit of using it? Once in a while I do get out of the habit of using it. Then I rediscover it again. And it's just so amazing. Um, so it looks like Mike's workflow a little bit and, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, to walk through it. But as a principal, one of the things that he has to do is he has to go through and at some point evaluate all of his teachers, which makes sense. And so he has a workflow set up in drafts. It looks like he's using some help from text expander, but he records the information from the walkthrough that he does with his various teachers. He puts the text in and after writing down the text, then he sends it off um, to wherever he needs to do it. He can either send off something into OmniFocus, but it, it looks like he uses a series of, of text expander snippets and, and things like that to kind of evaluate the teacher and then, and then ultimately send all of this information into a Google Doc where he can keep track of it for uh, you know, record-keeping purposes. Yeah, it's not that much work to set something like that up if you spend a little time in drafts. If you're listening to the show and you haven't tried it yet, I strongly recommend purchasing the iOS app drafts. And and just the very quick version of what it does is you can put text into this. As soon as you open it up, it's just a blank text field. And you can insert text either with your keyboard or through Siri. And then it's got all these actions it can take on the text. And if you go back and listen to the iOS automation show, we explained it in some length. For a simple thing is, let's say you've got a group of family members you're always texting, you can send a text out to them, or you can send something to OmniFocus, or you can do something much more amazing because it combines with Evernote and Google uh, Documents and all these other services. You want to have, uh, we've, we've had some comments on Twitter about having a Launch Center Pro show, but you, you want to revisit that and do both a Launch Center Pro and a draft show, yeah? Well, I think that one of the reasons why I had trouble getting into Launch Center Pro was because I'm so reliant on drafts and the idea of text works so well for me. Uh, Launch Center Pro has recently added some new features that I think are more appropriate for what they do with tapping icons. And um, when we do, we're going to we're going to do a show on Launch Center Pro. But when we do it, I also want to talk about drafts and how I think the two of them 
meet or where the, where where what the strengths and weaknesses are the, are of these applications i mean i think they're the two premier automation apps on an ios device and then the other question is what's going to happen with ios 8 and this kind of stuff um, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention to you when we were talking earlier about, you know, pain points on computers, uh, I think this is kind of Mac, Mac Power user related, is we've done shows in the past on photo management, and I think this is one of the biggest pain points that we get from listeners when people write in. So many people have these huge photo libraries and don't know what to do with them, and this is the reason their drives are full, and they don't want to lose photos, and they're not, you know, there's just no good solution and Apple has announced with iOS 8 and Yosemite that they're going to be um, bringing this new Photos app. And recently in the news, they've announced that they're going to be dropping support for Aperture and iPhoto. So Photos is going to be the application to manage your photos. And they're saying that they're going to give you this ability to easily store all your photos in the cloud. So the the net result of this is if it works... You're going to be able to have a big photo library. You're not going to have to store it on your small 11-inch MacBook Air hard drive, but you're still going to have access to all of it. I am very excited to see how this works out. Yeah, Didn't you actually write an article for Macworld about this? Yeah, I did. I, I wrote a little bit on it. And and I talked about, I think, the challenges that they face. Because I think, you know, moving an entire user base is going to be difficult. The Mac Power users listeners are not going to have a problem. If you say, hey, guess what? iPhoto is no longer around. we got this new app and your photos are going to be in there. Um, you know, our listeners are going to be able to get their photos into the new app, whatever it is, and be able to work with it. But when you think to all the people who don't spend, you know, Saturday after July 4th listening to a podcast about geeky stuff, they're going to freak out. So I think they're going to really need to do a good job of making that transition seamless. And I also think they just have to, they have to really just kill it with the cloud. I mean, if you're going to put all my photos in the cloud, it's going to be accessible and fast and reliable. And, you know, that's something Apple has had challenges with in the past, but it seems like they're really trying now to make it better. So, um, you know, the bottom line is that there's probably going to be a show on that once all this stuff, you know, the dust settles on stuff and we can make some judgment about whether it's worth it or not. But boy, if they can deliver a scenario where I can take a picture on my phone or I can upload a picture from my memory stick on my Mac and it just goes into this cloud storage and then I can go over to my iPad and see it in the cloud and pull it down if I want. And then when you combine that with the iOS, a, you know, the extension architecture where I can use apps on my iPad to make modifications to the photo, and then they just magically appear back on my phone and my, my Mac, that is going to be a huge step in the right direction for photo management. Yeah, the folks on ATP were talking about this a little this week, and I'm excited about the new Photos app. It seems, based on the very few screenshots that we've seen leaked of this, it's really going to be a more powerful iPhoto. It's going to be much more of a, a blend between iPhoto and Aperture. It's going to bring in some more powerful editing features from Aperture. I really haven't been happy with iPhoto in the last couple of reiterations, but I just don't know what else to do other than use iPhoto. File and folders just doesn't work for me anymore. I love the ideas of my photo being in the cloud. I love the idea of being able to access it from everywhere and that iTunes match thing. But at the same time, I will tell you that it scares me a little bit with photos being some of the most important information that most people have on their computers, trusting all of that data only to Apple's cloud. I am always going to want to keep 
my own local copy of all of my photos somewhere that I can be in control of backing up. I don't want my photos to just live in Apple's cloud. As I understand it, that's not going to be a requirement. You still will be able to have the local storage and local archive, but just the, the big problem of people having more photos and space on their drive and, you know, you know, the bottom line is because things are such a mess right now, people are losing photos because they don't know how to deal with it. They, they don't have room on their drives. They're not storing. They're not pulling things off their sticks on their cameras. It's just a mess. So I, I think this is a step in the right direction. I hope it works out. Katie, I am so pleased to welcome LaunchBar back to the show. Now, if you don't know what LaunchBar is, it's an application that allows you to do almost anything from your Mac with just your keyboard. And now they've got a brand new version 6 out that's amazing. It's got a brand new user interface and themes. They've even got a Yosemite theme, if that's your thing. Um, They've improved the configuration interface and they've added additional indexing rules. So now LaunchBar can look at your reminder lists and your finder tags and even your Safari iCloud tabs. They have new actions that you can perform on these indexes, including tagging, which I think is becoming a big thing now. It, it supports AirDrop and live web search. So when you do a Google search and launch bar now, it doesn't just take you to that search on the Google page. It even gives you the results right in the launch bar menu so you can go down to the most appropriate one and get going. They've got a powerful custom script-based actions added so you can extend LaunchBar with custom actions uh, written in a common scripting languages. And they also allow you to write your own or add them from a library of user and developer submitted actions. And that library is getting pretty big. So you can check it all out at www.obdev.at. So that's Objective Development is the name of the company. Once again, obdev.at. You can use LaunchBar for free as long as you like with all the features available. After 30 days, LaunchBar will occasionally nag you to consider a purchase, but all the features will remain fully usable without any restrictions. It's $29.99 for a single license, or you can get it for your whole family for just $48. They also have upgrade pricing, so if you've been using it for get in there and get on that upgrade pricing Uh, once again thanks a lot to LaunchBar for supporting the show and releasing this amazing new version so kind of keeping with our theme of getting started with things uh, Andrew had a question about apps that we install out of the box so Andrew's question was if you were to start fresh with a Mac which apps would you install what apps do you think are essential for every Mac user so I you think, could just go re-listen to every episode of Mac Power Users and see what we've No, but about. I, I do I do like the question in the essence of, you know, what goes on first? You know, what's the very first thing you load up? And, and for me, it's one password. Well, I just did this recently because I, I went through a nuke and pave. And so I had to it's interesting to think about the order because it, it depends. It depends on where is your data. The iCloud and cloud services have really changed this because you're right. For me, the first one was 1Password as well. Full disclosure, they're a sponsor because that is the gateway of how I get into everything else. It used to be that Dropbox was first because my 1Password data used to be stored in Dropbox and then 1Password was second because I had to get my data out of Dropbox first. But now 1Password is first so I can get all my Dropbox data or so I can get all my data so that I can start downloading my other folders. But 
Yeah. Dropbox is certainly up there as well because I keep a lot of information. But I, you, you're right. you got to get all your cloud stuff, whether it's stored in Transporter, whether it's stored in Dropbox, whether it's stored in iCloud. But you would be amazed at just how much stuff now automatically downloads when you set up a new Mac just by typing in your Apple ID and password because it's going to pull in all of the email accounts that it knows about, all of your Apple ID information, all of your contacts, all of your calendars associated with that Apple ID, as well as even if you don't have those apps installed yet, it's going to pull down the data that's associated with your app. So probably out of the box, you've got iWork stuff, you've got the pages and, and all of those things. So you've got all that data already. So you're already up and running pretty good. Once you start adding your own cloud services, you've got some more. And then you just pop open the Mac App Store and you just start boom, 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 downloading what you want. Yeah, what I would argue there is don't go too crazy with the boom, 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 boom. Because right. why make make applications earn their way onto your hard drive? When you're you know rebuilding a Mac, it's easy to to look at the accumulated stuff you've put on the Mac over the years. Obviously, if there's something you need, you should download it. But don't just download everything. You know, download the stuff you think you're going to need, and then see whether you actually need the other stuff. You know, wait until it's actually required to download some of the stuff. It's really easy. You just push a button. Um, but, but like Katie said, I think you need your passwords first, then whatever cloud data you've got that's not iCloud. And that may be Dropbox. I actually Transporter is the first one because I've got the real kind of secure stuff on Transporter. I want to have that available. But both of them, basically, uh, setting up a new Mac, I will usually just set it out, plug it in, and hook it up with those two services and go to bed. And then when I wake up in the morning, it's got all that stuff on it. Um, the Then after that, then you start making the applications earn their way into the hard drive. Right. Now... The, the, trick, the tricky thing is the ones that aren't in the App Store. Because there's some that I... Like, the Omni stuff I don't buy. In the App Store, I always buy it from them directly because... They do upgrade pricing and they're expensive apps and I want to be able to get the upgrade pricing. So those you're going to, you're going to know which ones of those you need as well. And, and that's another reason why you want your one password data is because you've got your software licenses in one password if you're doing it right. And you can just kind of flip through there and you can see all the software licenses and you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to definitely need that app, whatever it is. And there's certain apps you know that you're going to need. So when you go, when I said you go boom, boom, boom down through the app store, I don't just go straight in a line and hit the install, the install, the install, the install button. I go down and see there's certain apps that I know that I'm going to install. I know that I'm going to install PDF pen. I know that I'm going to install uh, the iLife and the iWork suite. I know that I'm going to install the stuff that I use for podcasting. I know that I'm going to install Piezo. I know that I'm going to install Shush. I know that I'm going to install certain apps. And I go down on the apps that I know that I'm going to install. I know that I'm going to install Fantastical. I go through and do that because it's so easy to do it through the Mac app store. You can click those buttons and it will go through and do it in the background. And then I go through a similar process with one um, password going through my apps in there because those apps typically have to be downloaded. Now, sometimes if I'm smart in advance, I've downloaded those installers and saved them off to my Drobo so that I can just reinstall them from there. But usually I have to go out to the internet download the installers and reinstall them. And sometimes that can take a little bit of time. Yeah. You know, I, we talked about this. It must've been like four years ago, the magic install disc where I used to keep images of installs. And I still do that. I mean, it's just a hazel rule. It's not hard to run something like that. But when I'm setting up a Mac, I don't actually go to those installs. I, 
I keep those just in case I need them someday, but usually I just go to the, the web and download it in particular because there's so few of them now. Uh, so much of this is done now through the app store that there aren't that many apps I have to go outside to find. Right. And I will say, despite the problems with the app store, I still look at it first for when I'm going to purchase software because it is so easy doing reinstalls. And I agree with you. There are certain bits of software that you can't purchase through the app store and certain bits of software that I choose not to purchase through the app store because I know that it's software that I'm going to be looking to upgrade at some point in the future, but it has just become so easy. All right. It seems it seems to me that I'm sorry. Shush is acting a little funny for me. It's not sometimes it's toggling and not untoggling. Um, and by the way, now it says two minutes. That yeah. <laughs> well, and, and we we've only been recording for 38 minutes now, so I yeah, I, would, I, I would put I a lot of confidence in that. I don't even know what's going on, but anyway, the um, I think the two criteria you look at when not what are the two reasons why you don't want to buy in the app store? Cause generally I think it's preferable. Like you said, um, it's easy to update. It's easy to redownload. And if you have a family, you, it's easy to share among everybody. Uh, the two things I look at that may keep me out of the app store are number one, if it's a high priced application that sells upgrades, because that way you don't get the upgrades and hopefully at some point Apple will figure that out. And the second one would be things that have sandboxing limitations I mean, there's some apps out there that if you buy the version from the app store, it's not as good as the version that they sell on their website because of sandboxing. And that's the two reasons why you want to stay out of the app store, in my mind. All right. Well, I want to move on to some other questions. Um, I know, David, you just talked about LaunchBar, but we've been going for a while now. So I do want to take a quick break and talk about our second sponsor for this episode, and that is SaneBox. Uh, if you head over to SaneBox.com slash MPU, you get two things. Number one, you get a two-week free trial of SaneBox, but you also save $10 on any plan should you decide to subscribe. And if you're anything like me, you will decide to subscribe, and you'll probably do it way before your two-week free trial ends. And a lot of Mac Power user listeners have done that because SaneBox will help you make sense of your email. SaneBox has some great filtering features for helping you figure out what is truly important in your email, what can wait till later, and what you need to come back to at a later date. They start off pretty simple. You have your inbox, and then they create a sane later for you. And through very intelligent filtering, which only gets smarter the more you use it, only your most important emails go in your inbox, and anything that's not as important goes in the same later folder that you can filter through as you have time. If you got that email list that you just can't unsubscribe from or get off of, add the same black hole. Throw somebody in there, and you will never hear from them again. If you're going away for the weekend, like this long holiday weekend, you can create snooze folders. So you can say snooze till the next business day or snooze until tomorrow if you get email over the weekend and throw an email in that folder so you know you don't forget about it and it will pop back into your inbox at the appropriate time. But SaneBox does a lot more than filtering. They can also do things like move attachments from Dropbox to other cloud services 
Or they can also get very granular now with the filtering. And I think, David, this was something that you and I both asked them about is, can you give us a little more control under the hood about the filtering? So they've gotten some sane subjects lines. So if an email has a certain subject, you can automatically filter it to a particular folder. If an email has certain keywords in the subject line, it can automatically go to a certain filter. And I'll tell you, David, you were much more on the SaneBox bandwagon than I was. I didn't think I needed a service like SaneBox. I thought that I was smart enough to figure this type of thing out myself through setting up a bazillion different email rules, both in the cloud and on my local machines. I finally decided to give it a try in full disclosure because they were coming on as a sponsor and figured that I need to. And no joke, two days into my free trial, I signed up for their max level plan for two years, which I think was the most that I could do because just using SaneBox for two days made me a believer and I have been ever since. So go check them out, sanebox.com slash MPU. They've got a number of different plans depending on how many email addresses you have or how many features you need. They start about as low as $4 a month, but take advantage of the free trial, set up a few rules, see how you like them, and then go from there. So thanks again to SaneBox for sponsoring the show. You have to be warned, uh, Mac Power users listeners have the highest conversion rate of anybody that they've ever, you know, had these promo codes for. I mean, our, and it's a massive difference between our listeners and everybody else because our listeners get it. And once you get into one of these services and it starts saving you a bunch of time, you just sign up. Anyway, Katie Floyd, where were we? Oh, well, now we're into, I don't know where to group these. So these are miscellaneous questions. Okay. I got to come up. Christine wrote in. Yeah. Yeah. Christine wrote in about traveling with her iPhone. And she said she has an iPhone with Verizon and she'll be traveling to Europe with a group of 16 days this summer. Um, I'd like to have a way to stay in touch, but I've heard horror stories of people who have come home with crazy bills for international roaming. What's the best way to use my iPhone overseas without getting and spending a fortune? Well, that's a good question, isn't it, Katie Floyd? Have you been doing much international travel lately? I have not done much, but I have done a little. Um, and I've definitely, okay. I definitely help people with this because my boss just went to Europe for a couple of weeks. And I know that was the question that I got from him because he told me the last time that he traveled overseas, he didn't have a smartphone and cell phones weren't that big of a deal. And so it's definitely becoming a problem because we're all so connected now and people know that, you know, it's gets to be a big deal. It can be very expensive, but there are options. There are a lot of good options. So the first thing I have a breaking, I have breaking news. You have breaking news. Okay. It's, it's, it's done encoding. Oh. <laughs> and I, uh, I immediately hit command S it's saving and I'll shut down iBooks author. Woo-hoo. It, it <laughs> only, it that. only took that, that five minute encode job only took 43 minutes and 48 seconds. Woo-hoo. Well, you know, the scary thing is as it was finishing the save, it crashed. So I don't know what happened. So we don't know I'm if you actually got it. Again. Yeah, don't look at it. Don't look I, at it. I'm not going to open it again. It will just make me sad if it didn't go through. Well, you know, I've got 42 videos. I'm not sure they're all going to get in this book because it's just I'm pushing the limit. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. I interrupted. You Let's interrupted go back Christine. to Christine's problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, the first thing on my uh, bullet list here, and Mike in the chat room reiterates that, is depending on how long you're going and how much access that you really truly need. And and let's make a difference between needing access and wanting access. And, you know, de- that may depend on how much you really want to pay for versus need to pay for. Uh, most carriers now have some kind of international data plan. And I think Verizon or AT&T will have some kind of plan where you can spend 
like 25 or 50 bucks for 250 megabytes. And that's not a ton of data, but it's enough to get you through like a little Twitter and a little Facebook and text, um, I meant not text messaging, iMessaging and things like that, that typically doesn't include phone calls. Usually phone calls are billed at a different rate, but that will at least get you some data. And for a one-off use, you can usually do that. Now, with any of these suggestions that we're going to talk about, it's very important that you keep track of the amount of data that you're doing. And there's some apps that you can use for that. Uh, One of my favorites is an app called Dataman. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes, or more accurately, Haley, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you very much, Haley, for taking show notes for us. And you can also do it manually, and I would suggest that you do both kind of as a a belt and suspenders type approach. If you, you can reset in the settings right before you go your data usage to make sure that you've got an accurate count of how much data you're using. You know, another thing you can do with this stuff, because we did some travel as well with my family, and I was completely freaked out because I have teenagers, right? <laughs> and they have iPhones. Yeah, and, 250, and I'm going to do it for you. Yeah, and I, I know how much they text message, and I know, and there's, you know, you can, you, can get, you can get in trouble even staying inside your country, but if you get close enough to an international border that you get picked up by an antenna on the other side, I've heard of horror stories about that. So one of the things I did, and this is really low tech, is I just called up, we're with AT&T, I called up AT&T and I said, hey, we're going to go up to Canada. Uh, please tell me how I could screw this up where I'm going to get a massive bill. And the lady on the phone, and you can say what you want about AT&T, but they've always been really nice to me for customer service. And yeah, she says, I oh, agree. okay, well, let me let me tell you where the problems are. And she explained it to me. We we bought an international plan, a small one like Katie was recommending, but she also told me how to turn off text messaging and everything. So, so we actually took a bus from Seattle up to uh, Vancouver, and I remember in Seattle leaving the bus station and calling up AT&T and I turned off the text messaging on the kids, kids phones and they knew that was going to happen and they were fine. And we, we survived the trip with no text messages, but those text messages were going to be very expensive if like their friends started messaging them, which would inevitably have happened. And so I called them up, I guess is the short version of this. Call them up and ask them, you know, where the, the pain points are and ask them how to avoid them. The other thing to do, and um, um, Liana Lehuet taught me this. She she lives close. We got to have her on the show someday. But she does a lot of travel, and one of the things she does is she goes into these foreign countries and buys one of those kind of disposable MiFi's. Those used to be the big thing a few years ago. That's a little you know little box you carry, and it's basically a portable Wi-Fi. You push a button, and it connects to the local cellular network and gives you Wi-Fi. And she was talking about in some countries for like fifty or sixty dollars, you can get one with like five gigabytes of data on it. So you go into the country, you buy one of those things, and throw it into your bag, and just turn off your cellular antenna and do everything over that Wi-Fi device. And that allows you to keep your phone, not have to like fiddle with new SIM cards and all that other stuff, and still be able to have plenty of data on travel. Yeah. The other thing you can do is you, and I know Dom McAllister does this regularly when he travels to the U.S., is you can pick up an international SIM. Now, depending on where you're traveling to, if you're doing one of these tours where you're traveling through different countries, this may or may not be feasible because you may have to pick up multiple SIMs depending on where you go. But you can go pick up a, a SIM card from another country or from, an, I'm sorry, from a carrier in another country and usually load that up fairly inexpensively with data on one of their pay-as-you-go plans, take out your SIM, put in their SIM, 
and you'll be able to at least have some data. Doesn't work great for phone calls because you don't have your your regular phone and your regular number in there, but you'll likely be able to get a bigger chunk of data less expensively than you'll be able to buy it from your carrier, but it is a bit of a pain. So you have to figure out, you know, whether the pain point is. Typically what I tell people, David, and I don't, uh, this is what worked for me when I went up to Alaska this summer because we were in Canada for a portion of that time and I did not get any bill. I came home and I kept holding my breath waiting for that first bill to drop is I turned off um, my cellular antenna when I left the country or when I got close to the border heading into um, heading into Canada. And the easiest way I can tell people to do that is real easy. Put your phone in airplane mode and then turn on Wi-Fi, which you can do manually. So airplane mode on, Wi-Fi on. And if you see the little airplane icon, you should be good because that means that your your cellular data transmitters are off, which people aren't going to be able to call you. You're not going to be able to call them, but then you're going to be able to use Wi-Fi services and you can actually make FaceTime audio calls now. You can make Skype calls now. So you're going to be able to, if you have Wi-Fi service, which there's still pretty good public Wi-Fi available, you're going to be able to make uh, FaceTime calls or audio calls or Skype calls or update your Twitter feed or update your Facebook or whatever uh, anytime you are on a Wi-Fi network. Yeah. Or if you're carrying one of those Liana style Wi-Fi devices, you got the same thing. Yeah. Now, David, I'm I'm curious, and, and you might know something that I didn't. Were you concerned with your kids about them receiving text messages, even though their phones were off? No, I mean, they, we, we, they, their phones were not going to be off. I mean, we use our phones for taking pictures and doing all sorts of things. Um, but if I had left text, text messages turned on, this was a couple of years ago, but I forget the price, but it was quite expensive for every text message sent or received. And, you know, they're, that's what kids do these days. They, they talk through text messages. And so if you're up in Canada, your friends aren't going to stop texting you. Right. And uh, so what I did was you, you throw a switch at AT&T and they don't get any text messages and they can't send them while we're out of the country. Right. I just wondered why if, if you had just turned cellular data off, they would have only been able to send and receive messages over Wi-Fi. Would that yeah, have worked? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it may have. I'd have to look into it. I, uh, the whole SMS technology to me is cryptic because it seems to me like it's just dumb data, but they attach such a high value to it. I mean, it's they charge so much for it. Um, there's got to be something. Maybe there's like unicorn tears embedded in those messages or something. I don't know. But either way, and it was also kind of nice having the kids on vacation with no text messaging yeah. <laughs> between you and me. I, um, but yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, to be very honest, the short version, depending on where I was traveling and what I was traveling for and whether I needed my phone and whether I really, truly needed data, what I probably would do is is the easiest thing is I would probably turn off my cellular antenna by popping into airplane mode, turning on Wi-Fi when I felt that I was in a Wi-Fi spot, and maybe just paying an extra 25 to 50 bucks and getting an international data plan from my own carrier. But make sure that you cancel that when you get back. Otherwise they will continue to bill you until you turn it off. Yeah. They, they, that's one thing that you need to get on the phone for. Oh, you can do it on the online as well. Um, I did a little post somewhat related at Max Sparky a few weeks ago 
there's this bench that's like a couple hundred yards from my office. And sometimes I just have to get away. You know how it is, right? So I, I take my iPad over there in the afternoon. It's nice and shady. and I'll work over there for a little while. But the problem is that it's just close enough to my office Wi-Fi network that it wants to hold on. But the data connection is so terrible that it, it really doesn't work at all. And I got into the habit of what I call kicking the Wi-Fi, where on an iOS device, on the phone or the iPad, if you just flip up that control center on the bottom and you tap the Wi-Fi button and then you tap it again, so you turn it off and then turn it back on, then it will stay off of the Wi-Fi. I mean, the way iOS works is if it once it connects to a Wi-Fi, it will hold on to that for dear life. It, it does not want to let go. Maybe that's the way it should be. But, you know, when you're so far away that it's not working anymore, turning it off and then turning it back on again, oh, that sounds like a great show, I know, um, will will allow it to go to the LTE and it's, it knows it's far enough away from the Wi-Fi that's not going to get on. I have had so much feedback from people thanking me for that post, which I thought was really simple and kind of dumb. But apparently a lot of people don't know about that. So I'm sharing it here, too. I love Control Center. It was one of my favorite features on iOS 7. I was hoping in iOS 8 we'd get the ability to modify it a little bit, but maybe. We'll see. I'm so excited about extensions that I can't even be critical of anything in iOS 8 right now. I, I guess that's true. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see it really in action. Right now, it's it's a lot of promise. Everything about iOS 8 and Yosemite is a lot of promise. We need to see the stuff work. Um, we did get another, uh, well, actually, speaking of Wi-Fi, uh, we got a message from Lee, and he said, I have a basic wireless router set up at our home in the bedroom next to my wife's desktop computer. And I recently bought her an iPad, but when she's in the living room or on the other side of the house, she doesn't have a good coverage. Is there anything we can do to extend the network? Well, my friend Katie Floyd wrote a whole post about this, so why don't you explain it to us a little bit, Katie? This this is a very common problem, and I, I wrote a post about it when I solved this problem for my grandparents. So the, the basic thing, and I think Lee's got the same problem, and it happens like this. You've The cable people or the phone people or whoever installs your internet service, because typically you have to have that installed at some point, installs it next to wherever you're either A, wherever it's convenient for them, uh, or B, wherever your desktop computer is or wherever the computer is in the house. So most people have it installed. If you don't tell them specifically where you want it installed, you usually have it installed in one of your bedrooms or somewhere next to your computer. And that's sometimes not a convenient place for people. And in the case of my grandparents, and I'm assuming that Lee has the same setup here, their uh, DSL service, oh, it's horrible, is in a far corner at the bottom of a multi-level house which means, you know, these wireless signals, you know, think of it almost like a, a radar signal. They they travel outwards in 360 degrees. And this thing is about as tucked away as far in the corner as you can possibly get from anything else in their house. So they are broadcasting 75% of their Wi-Fi signal to the yard, to the neighbors, to the pasture, to wildlife. I mean, I'm sure that there's some deer in the woods who have got great Wi-Fi coverage. But yet my grandmother who's sitting in the living room has none. And my suspicion, I wonder what, I wonder what kind of content deers would, would torrent. I don't know, but I'm sure they are because their yeah. Wi-Fi is so slow. That's gotta be what it is. You've got some deers with some iPods or something going crazy, yeah. but maybe they're like game of Thrones. I bet they're game of Thrones people. 
I, I get this. I get this question from so many people, and there are a couple of things that you can do. And I'll I'll kind of go down my my general checklist for this. Um, option one, and it's the first thing that I would try because it's it's typically the 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 least expensive. Is if you can try to relocate your router um, and your Wi-Fi access point to a central location in the house to broaden coverage. So think about that. If it's going to go out in, in a dome-shaped or spherical-type pattern, you want it covering mainly your house and not the neighbors and not outside. So think about that when you have someone install this and think about that in terms of relocating it. Now, sometimes that's not always possible because sometimes you don't have ports located where you are or sometimes they've installed it in a particular place because that's where the signal is the strongest and you have to end up reconfiguring things. So sometimes it doesn't work, but if you can consider relocating your router to a more central location and see if that gives you a broader base of coverage. Uh, the second easiest thing to do, and maybe it will wait, work. Wait, can I? Okay, go ahead. Can Sorry. I interrupt there? Yeah. Um, one of the things, and there's apps to help you with this. Uh, one of them is in the app store. It's called Wi-Fi Explorer. I think I paid like $3 for it, and it gives me a great map of the Wi-Fi in my house. So you load this on your laptop, and you walk around a little bit and see, you know, what the what the reception is in various points of your house, and it really helps you get an idea of where the problem areas are. Yeah, and Wi-Fi Explorer, two ninety nine. I'm buying it now. Yeah, yeah. When you re when you relocate it, then you can kind of test it in various points. We have the same issue in our house, so I I've kind of gone through. I've centrally located the main router, and I've used Wi-Fi Explorer to kind of check out the the trouble areas. The other advantage of Wi-Fi Explorer because you may find out that your neighbor, your next door neighbor, is on the same channel as you. You know, there's various areas or channels that these are in. And if you guys are all fighting over the same narrow bandwidth, you're going to have problems. And uh, to such an extent that when, when I discovered that, I just moved my channel to something my neighbor's not on. So that's a great tip. I like Wi-Fi Explorer. I'm downloading it right now. The, the way that I previously did it is I just walked around with my laptop open. Is that not the preferable method? Um, well, you could do that with Wi-Fi Explorer too, but you should be careful. You know, you might trip over something, run, and... run into things. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you're looking to get a new laptop, it's actually an, an excellent idea. You can explain to your spouse that, honey, I was trying to make the the Wi-Fi better for you, and I fell and I hurt myself, and I need a new computer. Yeah, that might work. I'm not sure it would work with Daisy, but it might work with somebody's spouse. Um, the other thing that you could consider is if you have an older router you might want to consider upgrading to the latest and greatest technology because that will probably give you better coverage. If you have uh, 802.11g, you might want to consider upgrading to an 802.11n, um, or now they've even got these 802.11acs, which I don't even have yet. Um, you definitely want to upgrade to something that has the, um, is it called the MIMO technology? The multiple in, multiple out um, will help give you a stronger signal or um I don't know exactly what it is, but if you have an older router, you, upgrading to one with newer technology may help you. Again, if it's tucked away in a corner and it's just a distance issue, maybe not, but eh, they're not horribly expensive and it, they've got some benefits anyway. So, so that may be something to consider, especially if you're close. The Any comments on that? If you're going from a G to an N router, it is substantially faster, at least in my experience, it was. So, 
But you know, the other, the other hog here or the other, I guess, bottleneck is your actual internet speed coming into your house from your cable provider or, or whatever service you're getting the internet through. Um, so I, there's, so, you know, the, the trouble with this problem is it's thorny. There's so many different areas of, of, uh, trouble, you know, so it may be, Hey, I've got a new router and it's not any faster. Well, that's because your cable company is throttling your bandwidth and you're not getting enough into the house. And then you got to call them and turn it up. I, a couple of years ago, I, you know, I, I figured I could justify it because of the podcast and the other stuff I'm doing. We bought the, the increased speed. We're through Cox where we live and man, it is really nice. We've got really great internet speed. The upload speed's not so great, but the download speed is awesome. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is if it's, if it's an issue, you can um, group multiple routers together. So if you've got a router in one end of your house, you can put a router in another end of your house. And what you would want to do is you would want to basically add these routers in pairs. So you would want to have two routers running the same type of protocol, different channels, obviously, because you don't want them to overlap, but with the same wireless networks that are talking to each other. You're going to want to put the second router in what's called bridge mode, meaning that it's not handing out addresses because you only want one router handing out addresses. You don't want things conflicting on your network. But you've got to get a way to connect that second router to your first router in order to expand your network. And if you do this correctly, and this is just a very broad overview, when you walk from one end of the house to another end of the house, your Mac is only going to, or your, let's just, your iPhone or your iPad or whatever, is only going to see one wireless network and it's going to seamlessly hand off between these wireless networks. And you may not necessarily know which one you're on. It will just jump on whichever is stronger. But you've got to figure out a way to get the secondary router connected to the primary router. And the best way to do this is by running a cable. So I, I know this is hard in some houses, but if there is any way that you can run wire from one end of the house to another, run a couple of drops of wire, if you have an opportunity through a remodel or you've got some HVAC work going on and you've got somebody up in the attic anyway and you can pay them a little bit extra to run some wire, it will just pay you so much more in dividends to get some wire running through the house. You can put, keep your router on one end of the house, add a router on the other end of the house, and that will boost your coverage. can also help you if you're maybe trying to get coverage out on the patio or something like that. Uh, that can make a great difference. And running wire throughout the house is far and away the best way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Copper. Now, if you, you don't want to drill holes in the wall, but you don't want to use Wi-Fi either, something in between is what I call power line adapters. And you can get those at Amazon. You can get them at Best Buy and some of these other places. And it plugs into your router and then it uses the actual copper through the wall for the power line. And you've got two of them. You plug one in where your wife in in this case, he'd plug one in where his wife's computer is, where the, the original router is, and plug the other one in at the other side of the house where he's going to put his his extension device. And then it runs the internet through the electrical wire in the house. And it's not as fast as a dedicated, you know, cable through the wall just for the internet, but it is pretty good. It's faster than Wi-Fi. And if you're really stuck, that that's another solution. Yeah. Now you can you need to buy these in pairs, and typically they come in pairs. And you need to buy them in the same. So if you've got a really big house, you may need to buy, you, you always have to have one next to the router, but you may, and then usually you have to have the, you have to have its, its mate, its pair on the other end of the house, wherever you've got the other, other router. 
But if you've got a really big house or a really big setup, you may find that you might need a third upstairs or you might need a third on the other end of the house or something like that. I mean, if you're living in mansions or something like that, I don't have that problem here. But, but it's but, possible. You know, I've, I've heard bad things about trying to use more than two power line adapters. I mean, I don't know if they've got be- the technology's got better, but I know as of a year or two ago, I was looking at it and everybody that I talked to said, don't do that. Um, mm. You know, but if you just use two, it's fine. But when you add a third, there's problems. But it has been a couple of years since I looked at it seriously. Maybe they've got better at it. But yeah. I think that's a really kind of nice middle of the road solution. If you do want to put your bridge on the other side of the house, get a couple of power line adapters. That'll cost you probably about a hundred bucks. Oh, less and, than that now. They've really come down. In oh, price. is it? Yeah. Oh, really? Well, it's, it's even you better. Can, you, so can, you can get really high end ones for a hundred bucks now. Yeah, well, I would get a high-end one because you're sending your data through the walls. And, you know, if you're going to go through this process, you want it as fast as possible. They also um, have similar technology over coax instead of over power. I didn't know that. Yeah, so, it's fairly new. So so it plugs into, like, your cable system. Correct. Hmm. Well, I, that would make sense because my, my Internet's coming into my house through coax. Yeah, and they figure your house is probably already wired with coax, right? Most people. Yeah. 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 So. um, Okay. And then lastly, which I do not recommend, but which everybody wants to try because it's so easy, but I really, really, really don't recommend it, is there are wireless extenders that you can get it. Um, Typically, you have to get a wireless extender that matches or is rated to work with your wireless router. So if you've got a Linksys wireless router, you've got to get a compatible Linksys extender. Or if you've got the airport router, you want to get the airport express. And it's basically, it's just kind of a, a, a bridge. I think of it as hopscotching the signal or hop, hopscotching. Yeah. I don't, hopscotch. Yeah, I guess. So the, I don't know if it's a word, but I like it. Uh, yeah. So the signal then goes wirelessly. You, you basically put it in between. So if you're trying to get signal from one end of the house to the other end of the house, you put the wireless bridge in between where you still have a decent signal. And so it goes from the, the good router to the wireless bridge, and then hopefully to the other end of the house. I, I have tried this. I have not had good results with it. It can work in a pinch, but typically you're going to see an overall uh, degradation in your entire network when you try to do this. So your mileage may vary. It's really easy. You just plug it in, you set it up, and you hook it up, but mm, not my favorite. It, it feels a, it feels a little tinfoil hat to me, you know, when you try to do that stuff. Uh, but it, listen, I, I think we've given everybody plenty of ideas if you want to try and make your your network a little faster. Yeah. Um, we also heard from Alan about backing up iPhones uh, when iCloud fails. He says he's wondering whether or not we encounter the problem where the iPhone could not be restored from the iCloud. Um, he said it's awful. He met such a thing and he could not restore from the cloud and what's worse he did not back up the data in itunes because he trusted icloud i have not heard of this so Uh, it's a little concerning to me yeah so so apparently you know apple came out with the icloud backup a while ago which is really awesome in the sense that your devices are always just backed up you know my kid we had to replace a, a phone in the family and at the apple store it restored her apps and her contacts and all that stuff right there when it works, it's amazing, but apparently it doesn't always work. 
And I don't want to freak people out. It's not like it's a common thing for it not to work, but I have heard a few cases of it not working. And like anything, data can be corrupted and things can fail. And so especially if something gets interrupted during that data transfer for any reason, it doesn't get time to complete or any little hiccup in that process, your data up in iCloud can become corrupted and your backup can either fail or your restore can fail. Again, not common, but it can happen. So while iCloud is and remains my plan A, my primary source of backup for my iOS data, I always recommend that you have at least a plan B, if not a plan C, for backing up your data. And the easiest way to do that is to also back up your data occasionally through iTunes. Now, when you enable iCloud backup, by default, your iTunes backup is disabled every time you sync with iTunes. But you can always run that manually by plugging your your iPhone, your iPad, whatever, into your computer opening up iTunes and clicking on the little button that says backup. I personally make make a point to try to do this at least once a month and before any major iOS update. Sounds like a great OmniFocus task. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, Probably you see common problems of people losing things in backup uh, related to photos because they have too much data and so they don't back up their photos or their videos regularly. And there's some other solutions for that. We talked about it a lot in our our photo management show. I think that's about to get a lot easier when when Apple kind of solves this problem. So I don't want to dwell too much on it. But I personally think that you should probably regularly sync your photos to your Mac, either manually or via PhotoStream, or consider a third-party option like Dropbox for PhotoSync or Google for PhotoSync. Just make sure that that data is getting backed up and and that you have a plan B. I think that, you know, it looks like they're trying to fix that. They've got increased storage limits for iCloud. But to me, what they really should do is just make it, if you buy a 64 gigabyte iPhone, that they are going to back that up for you. And at at no point are you ever going to get the message that you have run out of storage space. Good luck with that. Well, I I think that they should do it. I mean, they, they make plenty of money and... And they've got a lot of users out there that get that message every day that they need to buy more storage. They're not going to buy more storage, but when they lose data, they're going to be really angry with Apple. Well, and it's, I, it's I mean, not I, even I think a, there's a business reason for this. Well, I, I read something somewhere that Steve Jobs really had to fight with the Apple board to make even the basic five gigabytes free. I don't know how true that is, but it sounds good to me. But it's not even truly a money thing. I, I don't think that, although there certainly are some people who are cheap and won't do it, there are some people who just flat out won't do it because it's something that they don't understand and something that they don't know that they have to do. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. agree. But I, I hope that, that you know, I, it seems to me like Apple's really starting to catch up with cloud stuff. And, you know, and we're going to find out really a lot in the next six months as they release all the stuff that they've promised. Uh, but if they can deliver on that, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to increase the storage size to match the device, too. So I liked your idea about adding an OmniFocus task to back up my iPhone, because believe it or not, I don't have one. And while I do that, why don't you tell me a little bit about the new OmniFocus? That was your cue. The I, I get it. Yeah. I The Omni Group is a sponsor, but I want to take an audible here, and I want oh. to talk about Omni OmniGraffle, because we've been talking about OmniFocus a lot lately, and OmniGraffle has been saving my bacon the last couple of weeks. I've been doing a variety of things between the day job and the night job, where I've been doing a lot of diagramming. Um, the stuff at, at the day job, I really can't talk about too much, but I, I've been needing to make really simple diagrams to explain a very complex transaction. 
And OmniGraffle has been there for me. And on the new book, I decided every time I'm going to put an iOS screenshot in, I'm going to place it on an iPad or an iPhone so it gives it more context. And I've been doing all this stuff in OmniGraffle. So I've had this this application open for basically the last month. And I just can't get over how good it is. If you want to make diagrams, because I was never the guy who took the class in Photoshop or, or Adobe Illustrator. I just wanted to make simple diagrams. And the Omni Group really gets it. It's an Apple-flavored application in the sense that it's very simple to use, but it's got some really great tools under the hood. And it's got like all those guides that snap things right in place. And I just find it is it's a great solution for me when I need to sit down and visualize something. So using OmniGraffle, you can build just about, you know, any type of illustration or diagram that you would want. They've got the thing in there where you can start writing an outline in text and it automatically builds a diagram to match it for like a hierarchical view. Um, you can, it's got a version for the iPad. Actually, they're getting ready to update, update that one. And then it can make wireframes. It can make, it can be a brainstorming tool. Like if you want to put together a workflow, uh, in fact, we get those from listeners once in a while. Listeners will send us a workflow of something they're doing that they built in OmniGraffle. And the whole thing syncs through the OmniSync service. I just think they've really done a great job of creating a professional-style uh, graphics and diagramming tool that mortals can use. And the way they did it with this latest version, it's version 6 on the Mac now, is they've given it to you in a way that just gives you the tools you need to get started. And they have all these like stencils. For instance, I needed a, a puzzle piece for something I was making. They've got a stencil for a puzzle piece. I thought I was going to have to go buy stock art. It was right in OmniGraffle. So you pull it in there and because you can resize it and image it and do all this great stuff with it. Uh, but then once you start playing with it, if you go over to the inspector on the side, you can get very detailed with the changes to it. So with a little bit of further investigation, you can get much better at it. If you go to the website, they've got videos explaining how to do all this stuff um go check out OmniGraffle if you've ever had any need for diagramming it's just to me the go-to solution it's saved me a lot lately and i really appreciate uh what they've done with it if you want to buy it you can go over to the uh, omnigroup.com they also buy it you can also also get it through the app store this is one of those ones where i was talking about i don't buy it through the app store because i do want to get their upgrade pricing um they've got individual and family licenses and they've got a pro and standard version so you can take a look at what you need uh you can also get upgrade pricing uh, everything omnigroup sells has a 30-day money-back guarantee so if you get it and it's not your thing that's all right. You can also just download a trial and kick the tires before you spend any money. So go check it out and upgrade the the diagrams and the graphic stuff you're producing with OmniGraffle. And thanks, OmniGroup, for sponsoring the show. That was a very nice Audible. Good job there. Well, I, I just can't stop using it lately. I, I was thinking, man, I, I don't know where I'd be without this program because it's so fast and so easy. I And, and once you start building repeated objects then it makes it very quick to knock those out it saves them as a png i don't want to keep doing the app yeah, 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 one, yeah, the, the one of the things though is it saves the png files with a transparent background seamlessly so when you want to drop a graphic like into a keynote presentation it's it's perfect for that all right well we had a ton of great feedback on the evernote show that was uh 198 i think and so I've I've grouped a lot of that together, and I just felt like we had to talk about it because we got so much feedback from people who were using Evernote about how they were using Evernote in ways that were different from what you and I discussed. I thought we ha we had to share some of that with our listeners, and maybe for people who haven't quite had Evernote click for them, this would give them some ideas. 
But the first bit okay. of feedback that you, we got. You seem very happy about this feedback. I, I, I can I, tell that. I am. The, the first bit of feedback that we got, which was something that we just, I had it in the outline, but somehow we completely skipped over it, um, is we had Eric and several other people wrote in to, to tell us that we did not, we, we mentioned some hesitancy that people had to put personal documents in the cloud and put them in Evernote. But Evernote does have a local notebooks feature. So if for whatever reason you want to store and you want to organize documents in Evernote, you can create a local notebook that does not sync to any to the Evernote cloud. So that is an option as well. And I had it in the outline, but just completely skipped over it. So those notebooks will only reside on your computer where it is where it is created. So thank you for pointing that out. The the downside of that, as I understand it, is you don't get the, you know, the cloud source work on this stuff. Like the OCR doesn't happen. Well, right, because it doesn't sync to the cloud. Yeah. You made me feel kind of dumb. Sorry, said that, Katie. No, I did not mean to make you feel dumb. Sorry, my bad. Okay, all right. I'm yeah. I'm just I'm just being honest. Yeah. <laughs> I you know I, I think that one of the things about this Evernote show was there are a lot of people out there listening to our show who are power Evernote users. Yeah, Joey is one of them. He uses Evernote for meeting notes, and I I like this idea. Uh, Joey says he consults with small businesses on strategy and meets with clients weekly or monthly and will regularly come away with two or three pages of notes, drawings, or diagrams on a legal pad. And I'm the same way because as we've talked, David, I have struggled with how to take notes and I always come back to taking notes on a legal pad and somehow scanning them in. So Joey says in the past, I've scanned these handwritten notes into PDF and placed them in nested folders in the client's folder on my hard drive, which is what I currently do. But even with good recall, I would find myself dreading review of the previous notes and pages of notes before sitting down to review with the client. And this is where Evernote has helped immensely. I still keep notes on the legal pad and will either take a picture of notes using the Evernote app or scan them when I get back to the office. I even use a, a Hazel script that generates a new Evernote document for me and inserts the attachment into Evernote. But I then use Text Expander to put the same header above each attachment that includes sections for goals, attendees, prep materials, and general notes. And the notes section contains about a half a dozen or so bullet points that I know will be important for the next time we meet. This time, when it's time to review the notes or time for my next meeting with the client, I spend maybe 60 seconds reviewing the synopsis rather than the full PDF file. I also use PDF annotation features with an Evernote or PDF pen to highlight specific parts of the notes that were added either to Basecamp or to to-dos that I put into OmniFocus. So he's, he's doing the same thing that I'm doing. He's taking notes on a legal pad, he's scanning them in. But then he's putting them into Evernote and then using Text Expander to add some additional notes so that he may or may not actually have to review the notes, but he's still got them. I think that's brilliant. Clever. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's clever. It, and it's a nice use of all this technology. You know, going back, I think it was David who had asked earlier, how do you get started in this stuff? This is where you end up with this stuff. Once you start incorporating small pieces of it, before long, you find ways to combine it to really make your life efficient. 
Uh, Dustin wrote in, he is a pastor and is continuing to use Evernote more and more within his workflow. And he wrote in with a couple of ideas that he thinks can either help others in ministry or perhaps in other sectors. Uh, one is he uses the document camera within Evernote to keep track of expense receipts. Uh, once he gets a receipt that he needs to turn in, instead of loading up his wallet, he grabs it with the document camera and tags it with the current year and the word expense. And this works for reimbursements for meals or whatever. And then he sends the email directly. Uh, sometimes he'll even email something if he gets a receipt by email and send it directly into Evernote using the email trick that we talked about, how you can tag and send things to specific notebooks. Now, let me interrupt there for just one second. I, I think if you're listening to the show and you haven't got on the bandwagon yet with capturing stuff on the go with your phone camera, this is a good this is a good call to you to do it. There's several apps out there. Um, you know, PDF pin scan plus does it with OCR. Evernote does it. There's other apps out there. The, f the cameras in your phones are really good. And when you're out on the road, there is nothing better than taking a picture of a receipt right at the point and either sending to Dropbox or Evernote or transport or whatever your places that you store things and just letting that be taken care of. It's, it's absolutely the way you should be doing this stuff. A few years ago, it was kind of sketchy because the cameras weren't that great. And then you look at the image later and it was hard to read it. No longer is that the case. Now the cameras are just way better than you need to do this stuff. So uh, go get yourself one of these apps and, and try this out. It will change the way you capture stuff on the go. Yeah. And then uh, he just says that he sets a task once a month to email, all, collect all those receipts and email it to the bookkeeper. And I would imagine you could either then change the tag or add a new tag that says submitted or something like that. But the beauty is, is you still have all of those at tax time so that you can process them. Um, another thing that is great is he uses these for sermon preparation is whenever he's working through something or he just gets an idea that pops into his head, he'll collect those in Evernote. Uh, and he also uses them, which I thought was clever for podcast notes. Um, as an audio learner, he says he listens to a lot of podcasts and he gets a lot of great ideas from those podcasts, but he'll, as he's listening to the podcast, he'll pop open drafts and we can talk about this again and your use of drafts and he'll, uh, he's got kind of a running list of, of ideas and things that he wants to check out that he keeps in Evernote. So he'll quickly type things for, from various podcasts that he's listening to into drafts. And he has a podcast note and an action that then appends those to his podcast notes in Evernote. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's just so many great uses for Evernote coming from the listeners here. Um, uh, we got, we heard from Dustin. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm out of order. Give me one second here. I've been flipping through all of them. Yeah, um, Bob's Bob, next. Yeah, yeah. Bob uh, talked about Penultimate. We didn't really bring that up. That was a great little kind of digital ink app on the iPad that, that Evernote bought and kind of folded into their universe. We should have mentioned that in the show. And, and Bob's another guy who does meeting notes. He's an architect, and he creates meeting notes in real time using Evernote. So rather than take the legal pad out, he's actually typing in. And depending on the situation, he'll either use an iPad keyboard or he'll use the handwritten notes using penultimate, you know, going back to that same app and put it in there. I'll tell you one of the things I'm still struggling with, because I, I'm, I'm sincere to say that I am looking for better ways to use Evernote in my life. I kind of was not a big fan of it to begin with, but the the more I look at it, the the more they've solved the problems that I had with it. Uh, I still am very leery about putting my my beloved collection of text notes into Evernote. Um, it, it it's so easy to find them in Envy Alt, and 
plain text is I'm so attracted to plain text. Uh, that's the that's a that's a hang up I have. I'm not sure if it's legitimate or not, but I still haven't really got to that point. But boy, uh, just to be able to drop just about any kind of file in there and find it later is pretty nice. Um, Katie, do you put all your text notes into Evernote? Pretty like, much. Yeah. You know that workflow I've talked about about you know NV Alt to some kind of text editor and having the text available anywhere. Do you do anything like that? I don't think I do as much as you do. Um. But all of my notes and things that I think that I may need to remember, yeah, that's all in Evernote. So, like, if you've got, just put on your legal hat for a minute. Someone gives, you find a really great attorney fee clause. Yep. And you say, well, I might want to use that someday. Yep. You drop it in Evernote. Yeah, I'm, in fact, I have, have, I have a notebook in Evernote called, um, I don't remember if it's called samples or examples, but something like that, that's nested okay. into a sub my legal subfolder. And do you find that it's easy to find that? I mean, is it easy enough? Mm -hmm. And I will even, if if someone has a particularly good pleading, I'll scan it in and put it in Evernote. Like, oh, that was a really good, you know, this is a great yeah. example of how to do a quiet title suit, or this is a great example of how to do a whatever. Yeah. Okay. Because, well, because Evernote allows me not only to just snag the text, if it's really good text, but I can snag the whole document. Yeah, well, I do that. That's something I've been, that's one of my things I've been working with. Evernote is I have forums. Some of them are pages documents and some of them are Word documents. Right. And those going into Evernote make a lot of sense for me. So the natural progression would be, okay, now I start putting that text stuff in there. But I just can't quite get there yet. Um, yeah. Also, for me, there's just so many text notes. Make, making that move would actually be a bit of work. And I'm not sure I want to do it yet. Well, so anyway, I'm... I'm yeah, he may, but I, I, I don't know. I, I do like what's happening with Evernote. I love the integration with drafts. And I don't know, did we talk about that much on the show? But it, it's really crazy how much you can do from drafts and iOS into Evernote. They, they've done a really good job of integrating those two things. Uh, the other thing that we didn't really talk about in Evernote was audio clips. You can keep audio clips in Evernote. And Arnold wrote in with an example of how he does this. Arnold's an attorney. He practices international law at the United Nations. And his job apparently involves quite a bit of research and writing. I would imagine that it does. And he uses Evernote mostly for brainstorming and capturing bits of research information, similar to how you do, David. But he also uses it to record ideas or thoughts through audio files. So if he's walking down the road, like kind of like I, I know you walk down the road and talk to yourself. I've seen you do it. Yeah, I've, I've taken a lot of heat for that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he will um, take an audio clip of it and he will throw it into Evernote. And unfortunately, the iPhone audio recorder doesn't uh, go into Evernote, although I suppose you could email it to your Evernote address. But if you go on the Mac App Store, there are a number of uh, audio recorders that have hooks into Evernote. He settled on one that's just simply called Audio Memos. And he has the recording um, sent to an action notebook. Sounds like it's a lot like my inbox type notebook. And then he will tag that and he will process those notes in the action notebook, adding those to dedicated notebooks based on the subject matter. And then he can search Evernote by tags and, and find that audio bit. Clever, clever. Charlie wrote in about tags in Evernote and he said he uses uh, extensively uses tags in Evernote. Um, Although not everything gets tagged in certain notebooks, some notes will be tagged with several tags. And he says the simplest example is his food and cooking notebook. He has over 600 recipes. I think I want to go visit Charlie. I think I just want recipes. Charlie to share that notebook with me. 
or maybe just yeah, come exactly. cook for me. <laughs> and he has techniques and reviews, equipment reviews in the notebook. And he says he generally tags each recipe with the main ingredient and then the style of cooking. So then he can say, if I want to make barbecue with, you know, uh, chicken, then he can find all the recipes very quickly that do that. And uh, it makes it easy for him to search for a specific note or a similar group of notes next time he wants to do the barbecue and chicken. And he also does like Italian style, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought that was a nice use. I, I think tags are just kind of the way things so much is going right now. I, I still, I was looking on the internet. I, I still haven't got a very clear answer. I understand with what's going on with the upgrades to iOS 8, but I haven't seen affirmative proof that my tags that that take place on my Mac will show up on my iOS device. Have you seen that? In Evernote? Yes. In, I, in iOS 8. I'm sorry. I am I just switched gears real quickly. Oh, uh, I, don't, I, I'm, I'm I don't know. I'm not using tags. iOS 8, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'll, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, we also heard about Evernote storage from Cleave. Yeah, and you need to be aware that if you use the Evernote application on your desktop computer, which I do quite a bit, that... And I like this feature. It will store a copy of everything that you have in Evernote on your local hard drive. Now, I like that because that means that if you're not connected to the internet um, or Evernote is down for whatever reason, or or they're under a denial of service attack, which has happened fairly recently, um, that you still have access to everything that's in Evernote. But it can be pretty big. And my Evernote notebook locally is is over two gigs now. And so you could argue that that is a redundant copy of items that maybe you don't need because it's already stored in the cloud. I personally like having it. Um, but Cleve says that it was something that he was aware of and, you know, maybe didn't necessarily need to continue to back up with Time Machine or Backblaze or all of those other types of backup services. I just mention it because it is a big hunk, chunk of data that you should be aware that it is. Um, I personally like having it and I personally like backing it up because it's really easy to restore, but your mileage may vary. And then Brian wrote in with what I thought is an awesome tip that I'm going to to steal about keeping Evernote tidy. Because one of the things about having an everything bucket is it gets really tempting to throw everything in it, and then it can become overwhelming. And so you have to find some way to manage that. And Brian says that he manages that by adding a weekly OmniFocus task to do two things. Number one, you clear, or I guess it's two tasks, clear the Evernote inbox. So you make sure the Evernote inbox is clear at the end of every week and review one notebook. And it probably takes only a couple of minutes, depending on the state of the notebook and the size of the notebook that you decide to review. But it keeps Evernote useful for you because it results in clearing out obsolete material that maybe you don't need, restructuring and reorganizing the notebook as appropriate. It makes sure that you've gone through and you can assign descriptive file names and tags. It helps refresh your memory as to what's in that notebook. And it helps you become a more effective Evernote user because you learn about what's in there and and maybe how you can use it more effectively. I just, I thought that was a really good idea. So, I like that. That's one of the reasons I'm afraid of Evernote, frankly, is I could just see it becoming this massive pile of stuff and almost unusable. I I find myself doing that sometimes with Pocket as well, where I need to go in and just really just kind of clear it out. Well, it's it's like anything. You just, if you keep on top of it, it won't be so bad. Yeah. So doing one notebook a week doesn't sound so bad, does it? No, it doesn't, Katie Floyd. Um, Why don't we talk about our last sponsor, and then I've got something I want to talk about RSS, and then we can wrap this up. 
Um, so our last sponsor for this episode is our friends over at lynda.com. And I got to tell you, the summertime, I am finding myself with not as much to do. Um, things are a little bit slower. People are out of town. Things are not quite as crazy at work. I should knock on wood when I say that. Uh, TV shows are in reruns. Not that I watch that much TV. So this is a great time to start your free seven-day trial at lynda.com. And you can do that by going to lynda.com slash users because you got a little bit of free time over the summer. Why not use it to go ahead and learn something and enhance some of your skills? So lynda.com helps you learn how to stay up to date with software or how to pick up a brand new skill or to explore a new hobby. They have got easy to follow video tutorials on hundreds of different subjects, anything from very technical um, to much more generic. You can learn how to use Photoshop and get really nitty gritty with how to use uh, layers and other techniques, or you can just learn something a little more generic about like how to improve your tech, your photography skills. If you want to take better photos when you go on vacation later this month, there are other over 2,400 courses that are taught by industry experts with more courses being added every week. So if we sparked your interest, maybe talking about Evernote, you want to learn about Evernote, guess what? There's a lynda.com course on that. Uh, in past episodes, we've been talking about if this, then that. Guess what? There's a Linda course on getting up and running with if this, then that. There's Linda's courses on how to manage your time more effectively. There's Linda courses on how to use Microsoft Office. This is a great tool that we're considering actually using at our office for staff training because we just uh, upgraded to a new version of Microsoft Office and we're getting a lot of pushback from some of our staff not knowing how to do certain things that they were comfortable with in the other office suite. Well, you know, maybe pick up lynda.com as a, as a way to train some of your folks. It is so easy um, to view lynda.com and they've got great tutorials and I'm a very visual learner. So I just, I pick it up immediately. The courses are all produced at very high quality. These aren't homemade YouTube videos. You can watch from your computer, your tablet, your mobile device. They're broken down into bite-sized pieces. So whether you've got 15 minutes or an entire day, you can learn at your own pace. And depending on the plan that you pick with their premium practice, you can even download project files and practice along with the instructors. So um, again, we've worked out a great deal with lynda.com and they'll give you a free offer so you can access their entire library for seven days. lynda.com, that's L-Y-N-D-A.com slash users for your free seven-day trial. And if you use and love lynda.com, be sure to tell them that David and I sent you. All right, David, what are we doing to wrap this up? Well, we heard from Kevin, and this one has been kind of trailing on our list for a while, and I wanted to do it because I think it would be fun. Uh, Kevin said he's getting into the RSS bandwagon, and if you're not using RSS, I think you should. It's a great way to keep up with the websites that you love. What, what is your RSS reader, by the by the way, right now, these days? It depends. Uh, I am using Reader on the Mac, and I'm using okay. Mr. Reader on the iPad, and I... I have Reader on my iPhone, although I'm not really using uh, RSS on my iPhone very much. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really digging on Red still. I've got it on the iPad and iPhone, and um, on the Mac, I've got ReKit, but I'm I'm going to buy Reader too for the Mac. I just haven't got around to it yet. But anyway, so and so Kevin wrote in and in essence asked, "What are some of our favorite apps or favorite websites to follow in RSS?" And Katie, you you've got a pretty good list. I'm going to let you go first. 
Well, I, I break mine down into a couple of different categories, and feel free to chime in on some of these if you have different categories. Um, I have one for Apple News. Obviously, we do this podcast, on, so I need to stay on top of that. I have one that is uh, blogs. So those are, are my friends, and some, many of them are tech-related. Some of them are not. So I have a, a blog category. I have a general productivity category. I have a general news and tech category. And I have categories for uh, deals, and I have categories for local things, so things that are going on locally in my community. And those are, those are my main categories of, of apps. And I'll, and I'll share some of the feeds in some of those big categories. You probably don't care about what's going on in my local community. But in, yeah. in terms of um, uh, Apple News, what have you got in, in that category, David? Uh, I, I think we've got a lot of the same ones. I, I think Macworld is the place I start with this stuff. That's the one of the Agreed. few fire hose, fire hose places I subscribe to. But if something happens of relevance related to the Apple world, Macworld's going to cover it. The people that, that write it are really smart and intelligent, and they always bring kind of the, the story. They don't bring sensationalism to it. So I think Macworld is a great place to start. Um, the, uh, in fact, that's really the only Mac news site I follow anymore. Uh, now, I've got some others. You've got categories on the outline, like Daring Fireballs, Apple News. I don't really see that as news as so much as kind of um, analysis. And I do follow Daring Fireball, John Gruber. I think he's really great. Um, Stratechery, S-T-R-A-T-E-C-H-E-R-Y. I want to say it's Ben Thompson. I might, I might be wrong. I forget the guy who writes it, but he, he worked for Apple and he worked for Microsoft and occasionally he does some analysis type stuff that is just really spot on. Um, well, but talk more to me about your Apple news. Yeah. Groups. I follow daring fireball. Although you may want to consider following their articles only feed. If you're finding that too much. Um, I have really cut down a lot on some of my link blogs that I follow. I may still follow them on Twitter but not necessarily put them in my RSS feed. And if I see something interesting on Twitter, I may throw it into Instapaper. Does that make sense? Twitter Twitter has, no, has, has cut down a lot on my RSS feed. You know, for things, if I find sites that I was just constantly brushing over them in my RSS feed, I'll still follow them in Twitter, but maybe pull them out of my RSS feed. Um, I, I like the folks over at the Mac Observer. I know a lot of the writers over there, and I think they've got some high-quality stuff, so I keep them in my Mac my RSS feed. And I think the folks at Tua do a really good job. And I would agree with both of those. I, I don't always follow them because, I'm, like I said, I'm trying to keep the feeds thin. But I, I trust and uh, like the stuff they publish at both those sites. Mac Stories, uh, Federico's site, I don't really look at it as a news site, although I know they do news. It's more as kind of a tutorial type site. They, he has a lot of good extensive reviews and tutorial stuff. So I kind of put that in a different category, but that's another one that I do follow. And then I have this whole subcategory of blogs, and I follow a lot of my friends' blogs, and I can't mention them all here, but I, I would ask, um, you should follow MaxSparky.com and KatieFloyd.me if you don't follow anybody else in your blog feed, right, David? Yeah, so that, that means you have your priorities right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of good ones out there. Uh, Brett Terpstra, who's on the show quite frequently, has a great blog at BrettTerpstra.me. Yeah, Mac Drifter. Gabe, who was just on our last show, uh, does a really fantastic job at Mac Drifter. Yeah. Um, Sean Blanc. 
yeah, Sean has a great site. I mean, there, there's just some really, there's some really smart people out there. And the thing that I'd say that the bloggers being one of them is we don't try and be the Firehose news site. We try and bring the stuff that we think is important and relevant to us. And it's not a huge amount of posts. So it's kind of a nice little taste of what we think is important. And I, I like that. Yeah. And again, this is the case where I'll, I'll try to avoid some of the fire hoses and some of the link blogs and keep those more on Twitter and keep really the people who publish. I don't have a problem if your blog publishes infrequently, but you publish substance. I actually prefer that personally. Yeah. Like so. one, Michael Lopp uh, is one of those people who he puts a post out like every two or three weeks, but it's just usually pretty good. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, general tech news, I I like the Recode site. I like uh, Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher. They broke off from All Things D, and or I guess All Things D doesn't exist anymore, and and they've gone off with Recode. And I also um, like Yahoo Tech, and because they've got David Pogue and Rafe Needleman and a, a good group of folks over there writing now. Yeah, so sometimes I have those turned on, and I've got a separate group through Feed Wrangler. And I, for instance, I use the Verge, but the Verge with, uh, I think it's Geek Culture and Apple, because they have different focuses in their feeds. And I just have that. So I don't, I don't want to really read all the Android stuff. I just don't really care that much. And, um, or the Windows news. So I, I have it kind of narrowed down, but that's in a separate, like, grouping in Feed Wrangler. And more often than not, I don't read any of that stuff. It just depends if I, if I have time and I'm sitting around eating a taco and I want to read it, then I'll go through and see what's there. But by no means do I actually check all that stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, and Tech and Hive, actually, uh, Macworld's sister site, Tech Hive now. Although yeah, they, they, they do a, cross post quite a bit. Yeah. And that's one that would go into that that other category in Feed Wrangler. You know, going back to your categories, I kind of did the same thing, but with, you know, with Feed Wrangler, I've got them set up with kind of orders of priority. And uh, in addition to kind of the, the Mac news stuff that I must read, and then there's the kind of tech news stuff that I might read. I've also got categories for, for law, you know, because I'm a lawyer in the day and I, there's blogs that actually keep up, keep me up to date with some things going on in my business. Um, so I have a couple of those and like you, I have some family and some other personal ones that aren't really all that relevant to the show. Yeah. Well, David, I told you the beginning, I was afraid this was going to be a short show and here we are at an hour and 41 minutes. So it's probably best we wrap this up now. Yeah. And, and we cut content. We actually didn't make it through everything we had. We did. We did. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you everyone in the chat room for coming in and uh, poking fun at me when I say words like deers. (laughs) and um it really is great having a chat room we're going to be doing more of these live shows um katie where can you find us you can find links to everything that we talked about in this show thanks again to haley for putting those together at our website at macpowerusers.com or at 5x5.tv slash mpu you can also send us a message to feedback at macpowerusers.com or you can find us on twitter we're at macpowerusers katie's at katie floyd and i'm at max barkey Hey, and don't forget, while we're on the subject of RSS, our personal websites, you can find David at MaxSparky.com, and I'm at KatieFloyd.me, and we will see you all next time.